Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. Uh, The Long View is generously hosted by 2d6.org, one of the top sites on the internet for board game news, reviews, commentary, interviews, and walkthrough videos. You can find them at www.2d6.org. The Long View is also sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Game Surplus is the source for all of your board gaming needs. From old classics to today's hottest games and hard-to-find imports, go to www.gamesurplus.com. And be sure to mention The Long View if you order. My name is Jeff Gamble, and I'm the host of The Long View. And today I'm very pleased to be joined by none other than Joel Eddy. Uh, otherwise known as Eka Mouse on Board Game Geek. Uh, you would recognize Joel, of course, from his own podcast and also from his wonderful series of reviews, drive through reviews. Joel and I are going to be talking tonight about a game that's very much in the hotness list of recent. It's called D-Day Dice. Uh, this is a game that uh, has received a considerable amount of attention. Uh, it is a game that I backed as a Kickstarter in, in the interest of full disclosure. I was very excited about the game. Uh, This is a game that originally debuted sort of as an online web-published game, I believe back in around 2009. I'm looking at the BoardGameGeek database entry, and it says the free trial version, which, as far as I know, used to be the version of D-Day Dice, uh, was available on the web uh, as far back as 2009. This is a game that I became aware of a few years ago and downloaded it and put together my own sort of copy of it and was really sort of uh, uh, had a great time with it and thought it was a really solid, tight little design and enjoyed myself tremendously. I didn't play it a lot, but I had fond memories of it. So when my friend uh, Lloyd came to me and said, hey, you know, guess what? D-Day Dice is on Kickstarter and uh, Valley Games has picked it up and boy, it looks gorgeous and it's already hit its uh, funding goals and uh, I was kind of very excited about that. And so uh, Lloyd and I signed on and, and uh, became backers. Um, D-Day Dice, the version we're going to be talking about tonight, was uh, a game that was released in 2012. So it was this year. And it was designed by Emmanuel, I, I hope I'm saying this right, Akin, uh, or Akin, A-Q-U-I-N. Uh, it is a game that is uh, played with one to four players. And uh, it is a game that attempts to use dice in a sort of Yahtzee-ish sort of style mechanic uh, where you roll dice in an attempt to gather resources as you move up different historical beachheads from World War II. Um, So the game was rich in theme for me. It had the visceral sort of excitement that I always get with rolling dice. And it was something that I could play solitaire if my wife was not interested in playing a game that night, which was a big thumbs up for me. Uh, but then it also apparently was expanded to you know play with up to four players, and I was very excited about that. So this game is one that you know was sort of in the back of my mind and then popped on my radar. Um, and so I was very excited when I heard that it was being kickstarted and was. Uh, anxiously awaiting it. Joel, what was your uh, experience, uh, first of all? And, and, you know, did you try that free version of the game way back when? Or were you just new to the D-Day Dice when you first heard about it on Kickstarter? And, of course, thank you very much for joining me. And uh, what, what would you say, Joel? Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on again. I would say I first heard about D-Day Dice when it was on Kickstarter. I didn't really have... 
any uh, you know feelings about it or any sort of recollection about it until then. Um, I the thing that really sort of piqued my interest originally was just the name of the game, you know, D Day Dice. It's just so kind of evocative of it's sort of a bizarre juxtaposition. You know, you've got D Day, which is such a you know massively famous historical day in World War II, and then in Dice juxtaposed with it as sort of you know, whoa, okay, what's this about? And then from there, it was like, you know, watching the Kickstarter, watching it sort of grow exponentially. I don't remember what it ended up as as far as, you know, the funding level. It was really, really high. I think it was the number one board game slash tabletop game thing there for a while. Um, but, yeah, that was sort of my initial impression and just seeing all of the different, uh, uh, you know, uh, stretch goals that it was going to hit and you were going to get all these extra stuff, the extra expansions, the little mini expansions and things like that. And it, And the game looked, you know, just fabulous. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, something that I do want to say, which is that, you know, I I really think Valley Games uh, did a fantastic job with the production of this game. Uh, The maps are are on thick cardboard. They're double-sided. There's lots of different opportunities for uh, different scenarios to be played. There are tons of cards for your specialists, your unique specialists, your items, your vehicles. There are, there are just so many cards. The dice themselves are gorgeous. Um, mm-hmm. Even the standard dice, they're etched, you know, engraved dice. Um, they're, you know, they're not embossed, so there's no fading with them. They have a good weight to them. Uh, everything about the game really kind of screamed quality. Uh, I, I had a little bit of a nitpick with the dials, um, the, the cardboard dials mm-hmm. that you use to track your your items and your soldiers and whatnot. I thought they could have been a little bit better. Uh, you know, almost like that Fantasy Flight, Lord of the Rings kind of quality of uh, dials. But they're very serviceable. Um, and, of course, right. the stretch goals were crazy. I mean, I got this with a tin. I got it with the Atlantic Wall expansion and all the others. I got the bag. This ridiculous beautiful kind of canvas bag that says d-day dice on it and uh i mean they they really did it right uh when that box arrived i was extremely impressed with what was inside and i felt i got value for my money so i was really excited um you know and and something else that i forgot to mention earlier uh, that attracted me to the game is the fact that it was also cooperative and, and I like the idea of playing against the game as you and your other, you know, the other players, the people you're playing with are trying to advance up the beachhead and, and try to survive and, and make it to the bunker and, and win the scenario. And then I also was very, uh, quite frankly, kind of geeked out when I heard that one of the expansions would include the opportunity for players to uh, play as the Germans uh, where you'd have a little competitive play. So I really, mm-hmm. I thought this this really had a ton to offer. I was very excited about it. So I would say my expectations, and, and this is a theme I'm going to come back to, my, my expectations were very high for this. And, yeah, I, I yeah. Would, I would, I'm right there with you on that. Uh, I would just wanted to make a quick mention that the dials were also sort of probably the only component let down. Um, I, you know, I do have one of my dials that gets stuck all the time. Uh, you know, with one of the little spinner things, and it's just, uh, and other than that, they're fine, but I just would see that, you know, over time, they're going to degrade and be a lot more susceptible to damage and things like that, and and sort of rough play, you know, so, but other than that, I agree, yeah, the components are just above and beyond, other than those dials. Yeah, yeah, and my wife, uh, she actually pointed out something that irritated her, which is that 
Some of the dials, if you rotate them clockwise, they advance. And some of them, if you rotate them counterclockwise, mm-hmm. they advance. And so she was kind of like, well, why don't they all just advance, spin in the same way? And I don't know, you know, she, she found that a, a little bit irritating. Not, not a big deal, but just, again, something about those dials. Um, you know, out of all of the components in the game, I kind of felt that those, you know, I agree with you, were something that maybe almost seemed like that, that they didn't get the full attention that everything else got. They sort of stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah, yeah, because everything is also so good. And I almost kind of wonder if, you know, if they had skipped the tin in the bag or something along those lines and then put that money into the dials, maybe that would have been better. But who knows what the production cost of all that stuff is. I have no idea. Right, right. So, uh, you know, I think we both agreed that we were very attracted to the game. We were very attracted to the theme. It's a historical theme. It's an important theme. Um, and, and, you know, that's something else that, that I want to kind of circle back to later is the theme. So don't let me forget, Joel. Uh, say, hey, Jeff, what about the theme? Um, right. and, and, but, you know, what I found uh, in the game is, you know, the first time I played it, uh, I played it with my friend Lloyd. You know, we had just gotten it on Kickstarter, and, and we loved it. We had a blast. We had a great time. We found that the rules were easy to understand. Everything that you needed to know was on those maps and the rules were sort of introduced to you gradually over time as far as uh, more complexity added to the system with the different maps. A really nice way to do things. Uh, there are quite a few games that do it that way now. Um, but as we played it more and more, and then as I played it solitaire, uh, I have to say some things started popping up for me. And, you know, that's kind of uh, why I wanted to, to do this episode because... I, I've only played this game, honestly, about 15, maybe 20 times. Um, I've, most of my plays have been either solitaire with two or three. I only have one four-player experience personally. But, Joel, I know you told me you have some four-player experience, yes? Yeah, I've played it uh, with everything except for three. I've played a solitaire and with two and also with four. Right. So, you know, I, I think between the two of us, we've, we've kind of, you know, played uh, all the different configurations of the game. Um, mm-hmm. I will also say that I have not yet played the Atlantic Wall expansion. Uh, I am eager and, you know, look forward to trying that. But I also kind of feel that, you know, that's not part of the base game. That's not part of what most people would have received. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm, I'm trying to kind of strike a balance between, all right, when I, when I want to talk about D-Day Dice, I want to talk about sort of the base game and not all of the tons of extras that I got. And honestly, right. uh, you know, I think that's probably the most fair thing to do because the, the regular person who uh, maybe heard about it after the Kickstarter didn't get all that stuff anyway. So, uh, and, and as you and I have talked about, Joel, I, I think I feel the more I, I look at games and play games and, and talk about them, the more I feel I really do want a game to be complete out of the original box, not complete only with expansions. So, you know, what I wanted to talk to you tonight, Joel, uh, was about some of the things that I started to find with the game. And I wanted to get your opinions on it as well. And, And you and I have discussed it a little. But one of the things that I noticed about the game, Joel, was that the there, there seems to be an optimal path through any of the maps that you choose to play on. And, and that optimal path is basically determined by one of two things, either the zones that are the least dangerous, for lack of a better term, okay, or the least risky, 
And then, you know, that path is also made up of maybe zones on maps that you need to go to in order to maybe pick up an item uh, that is only available in that sector or whatnot. And, of course, you know, you always have to end in the bunker, uh, which is the ultimate goal. So I kind of found that, you know, there were quite a few zones on the map that, like, I just – I would never even imagine going to. They were just too deadly or too dangerous. And and I kind of felt that, like, huh, okay, well – if there's this optimal path that you can determine pretty easily, pretty readily, it's not like it was hard to figure it out, then mm-hmm. why do I have all the rest of this? Like no one is going to sort of voluntarily, you know, go into some of these zones that are incredibly deadly. Um, right. And so that 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 was my first kind of hint of, of something that I wasn't quite sure about. But I figured, eh, you know, whatever, uh, and, and continue to play the game and, and had a good time. I think the second thing that popped up for me, Joel, was was the first time I played it with uh, uh, three players. And, you know, the game pretty much specifically states that, you know, if you stick together, you are probably going to have a much easier time of it because you can freely trade your resources among units in the same sector. And with very few exceptions, uh, you know, there is no reason why you would ever want to break up. And what Absolutely. I yeah, and, and what I found is that as you're moving through this map, if you have more players, there's nothing that changes about the board that levels for the other players. And so when I played a three player, we discovered we were having a really pretty easy time of it. Four player was ridiculously easy, almost boring. <laughs> and so I, I was kind of like, huh, I, I, I really I, I, there, there was definitely something wrong with that. And, and so I started trying to, to put my finger on what the problem was. And, and here's a couple of ideas that I had. Number one, I think the game not adjusting in some way, the AI of the game not adjusting in some way for the number of players, I think is a crucial problem. I think about games like Pandemic where you know the ai takes a turn after every player turns so if you're playing it with only 2 the ai only goes twice if you're playing with 4 it's going to go four times so there's an automatic leveling according to the number of players as far as the difficulty and the pace at which things transpire on the board with d-day dice there is no difference the only difference is there are certain sectors that say only one unit may enter this sector at a time and right. that actually led to some of the tensest moments that I played because that really did, for once, force units to break up and perhaps move independently and then try to reform later. And that created some really uh, uh, nail-biting moments. But other than that, you know, your best bet was generally to stick together, trade everything, and, and you know, move your way up the beach slowly at first and then quickly towards the end as the fire becomes more withering, and then you just kind of win the game. So those were the first two problems that, that I kind of discovered with the game. Um, you know, so what I want to do now, Joel, as I've talked for a while, is, is I want to know whether or not you agree with those points or whether you have anything to add, or what, what, is, what was your experience and what were your thoughts as the game unfolded over repeated plays? Well, I would say, unfortunately, I do agree with you on that. Uh, there is, you know... As you move up through the middle of the map, there are some differences and sort of drawbacks. Like one may have, you know, mines as you cross into it versus the other one, which has machine gun fire, which is if you haven't played the game, you roll some dice 
and add that to the defense value of the sector, and then that adds the damage and the soldiers that you're going to lose. So there is a little bit of differentiation there, but it always seemed to me, and I agree, that it seems to be obvious after you've played a map maybe once, and then after you've played the game more, the maps themselves just kind of become obvious um, which sectors you should move through. And then again, like you said, with four players especially, the game almost doesn't really even work because it's just so easy. Because the nature of the game is that, you know, you roll the dice and you're either going to collect soldiers, you're going to collect star points, you're going to collect uh, courage or item points. So if I roll a ton of item points but no soldiers, well, I can give you half my item points and you can give me half the soldiers that you rolled. And then now we've got a nice balance of soldiers. So when we take our damage at the end of the turn, you know, nobody's going to be really in danger of uh, being wiped out. And now everybody's got enough uh, item points to buy the really cool items or to get the really cool specialists. And, you know, like I, I, am, I disagree with you because just the nature of the system is once that happens one time when you're playing a multiplayer game, it's just like, okay, what did everybody roll? Okay, you roll the most of this, you give me that. I roll the most of this, I give you that, and then away we go. And then you just sit, in, like you said, in the early sectors uh, for as long as you can because uh, the game actually forces you to move forward. Um, so, yeah, it's just – now, there is some variability. Like you said, there are a handful of sectors on certain maps where you can only have one guy. There's some where – when you move forward, you have to actually move forward again on the next turn, mm-hmm. which I, I just avoid those like the plague. Uh, <laughs> so do I. There's no like, good reason yeah, to go like, there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think as far as those those aspects that you brought up, I, I, I'm, I'm in agreement there. And, and, and the thing is, is, is the other problem is solitaire is freaking impossible. And because you don't have anybody to trade with, you can kind of trade... Uh, with some phantom dice, if you pick up the lieutenant early, which lets you trade actual dice with players, not just the the item points and, and the soldiers and the items and everything. Um, but you can do that a little bit. But then kind of just, you know, kind of continuing off of that is it gives you a lot of variance in the back of the rule book. Yes. And, and a lot of it is sort of like, okay, well, if it's too hard, then play with all the specialists instead of the specialists that are allowed by the map. Or start out with an item, or do this and do that, and then and I think those are actually really required for one player. And then on some of the more uh, difficult maps and more complex maps, uh, you know, with two player, uh, it, those are sort of required. But then after a while, it sort of becomes like, well, what is what is correct? And that is sort of a pet peeve of mine. And I had a, uh, a problem with this with another game, Bios Megafauna. It was kind of like that, where you get your set of rules, and then you have this whole other set of rules on top of it now, and it becomes sort of like a living rule book where it's like, well, pick the way that you want to play, which in some cases is nice because you have scenarios and different you know avenues to explore. But on the other hand, I kind of want the designers and the publishers to tell me, okay, this is we've tested it. This is how you're supposed to play. This is the optimal experience. If you want to add some flavor and stuff, that's fine. But like, don't make me try to figure out and sort of play test on the fly what's the best way to play because, I mean, I'm not that great of a play tester, I don't think. I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it's it's like I don't want to spend the time. Some games I do, but it's just this um, this one maybe isn't one of those actually, but 
it, it, it just kind of, it's a frustration for me and it leaves me sort of feeling like I'm in a quandary, sort of confused in the swamp here. Like, okay, what am I supposed to do here? Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned this uh, this notion of, you know, you, you, you almost feel like you're playtesting it, like they couldn't make up their mind, uh, you yeah. know, what to do. And, and, and you know, and, and, and I... I worry about that, and and this is another reason that I wanted to do this episode is is that I I'm concerned I'm I'm growing more and more concerned with games that go to Kickstarter. Um, you know, the game was available for a while, no doubt about it, and the game I enjoyed it, and the game received, but I only ever played it solitaire in its web you know published version. I only played it a few times, and maybe that's my fault. Maybe that's my mistake, and 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 that's fine. You know, I I freely admit that. But, you know, I, I kind of think with the, with the treatment that this game was given and with the production values of this game, which are, which are pretty stunning by today's standards, especially when you look mm-hmm. at games like Aura and Labora with the ridiculously thin player mats. I mean, they really did this one right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I worry that there's, there's not that sort of development and playtesting happening that would normally happen with a published game. Um, let me give you an example. I just got. I, I was just sent a game, uh, Milestones, um, from uh, Stronghold Games, which uh, they picked up uh, Milestones thing from Eggerspiel, and mm-hmm. I, I played this game. And after playing it once or twice, I mean, there there was no doubt in my mind that game is so tight, and is so clean, and it runs like clockwork. There's nothing about that game that is vague. There's nothing about that game that doesn't feel like it was fully explored, play-tested, and developed. It is done. Whereas this game, I can't. I find it hard to believe that no one noticed the the scaling problems between one and four players in this game. I, right. I, I just, I, I really, and and the author, uh, you know, the, the the designer of the game tries to help you with that on the solitaire level. Because I really do think this game is best with two. Yes. However, yes. when you go to the three and four player, uh, the AI of the game does not adjust. And, you know, I, I, I find it hard to believe that I would have been the only person to see that. And, you know, you <clears> and I, Joel, we talked about this. And I said, you know, one of the things that I could easily see that could go a long way towards helping this game is, you know, I think like, there should just have been a rule that said no more than two units may occupy the same sector at any one time. And and yep. still also have those other sectors that only one unit can go into at a time. Because then that validates the entire board space. Someone is going to have to deal with the suboptimal places on that board. So now you've opened all of that up. Mm-hmm. Also, to me, it makes much more sense thematically. I mean, you could not jam... You know, 500 <laughs> soldiers onto a hundred square foot of sand. I mean, you, you, you couldn't right. do it. I mean, you, the, the, these 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 brave soldiers who stormed these beaches came in these huge waves, and you know, you, you couldn't have everybody huddle up together in some sort of you know Roman shield configuration, making a turtle and advancing <laughs> up the beach. That's not the way it happened. And well, so, that was a machine gun pointed at you. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I feel that like a simple rule change like that would have been both thematic and would have vastly improved the gameplay. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm not a game designer. Um, I don't have that creative genius uh, that this gentleman had in coming up with this this game. I mean, there's so many things about this game that I like, but I just got to wonder, like, was it developed? Was it play tested? 
in a way that that it should have been because these things should have popped. I, I, I just can't believe that you and I, Joel, are the only people that notice that there's some issues here with this. Um, well, do you think that that's yeah. indicative? Yeah. Uh, what would you say about that whole idea that this is something that's becoming more of a problem? Um. I mean, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Kickstarter uh, initially with that idea, and I think there may be some validity to that. I, w- I mean, I've played several Kickstarter games over the last year or two, and the majority of it has been has been pleasant. That I've been pleased with what I've received, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm relatively, I like to think of myself anyway, as relatively discerning uh, with, uh, with the Kickstarter projects. But I want to get back to, real quickly, um, you know, you brought up Milestones, which I've played. And the, I, I want to be a little bit careful. I mean, I, I definitely get your point with that one. because But that's more of a traditional Euro, which, if that has any problems, it's going to basically explode in your face. True. I mean, even more. So I think they're kind of two different games. Not, not to kind of excuse D-Day Dice. But there is a little bit more wiggle room with, I think, a D-Day Dice type of game uh, than with, you know, like Milestones or something along that line. Fair enough. But I, but I, but I, but I totally get, you know, with the point you're trying to make there. Um, and the other thing is that is you're, we're not the only ones because the others in my group also pointed out. Uh, I remember when we played with four, and everybody was like, "Really? <laughs> is this, that was so easy, right. you know?" And uh, and yeah, and I think that getting back to your initial point about the Kickstarters and not being play tested, I kind of wonder with this game where the satisfaction uh, line was drawn. You know, I mean, I can see that this game is is very far along, at least from my perspective, as far as development and design and everything. It's far along, but I, to me, I think that there could have been some additional things done, like you said, balancing it so that there's only two units in a sector and maybe some other things that, you know, uh, we haven't thought of, but it seems to me like there could have been some more work done on that aspect. And, you know, I'm trying to rack my brain and come up with another Kickstarter game that I haven't been very pleased with. Um, gosh, the one I played lately is this game called fleet. I don't want to get into the tangent, but that one is amazing. And it's first-time designers. And anyway, I can highly recommend that one 100 times. But so that's kind of the other aspect is that one actually, D-Day Dice was kind of like it was really fun at the first few times I played it. And then the fun just kind of like deteriorated and then all of a sudden dropped off a cliff. Whereas Fleet, which is a Kickstarter game, basically it was fun and it was a little bit perplexing at first. But then it's actually as I've played it more and more and more, it's really ramped up. And so that's, you know, that's sort of the flip side is I don't know that it's necessarily a Kickstarter thing. I think there's probably some room there that Kickstarter maybe will be more conducive to games not being tested because they're able to get games out the door based on, you know, rules and pictures of the components and possibly, you know, video walkthrough of how it works and things like that. Um, So they maybe get a little bit, I hate to use the word lazy, but I can't think of a better word, lazy on the testing side. But, but yeah, and so that's, you know, what, what, that's about all I have to say on that one. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think you're right. I mean, I don't want to vilify Kickstarter. And, you know, like I said, I, I have no personal knowledge of how much this game was play tested or developed. So, you know, I, I'm just kind of reporting on it from what I see as the end user. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. and, and there are other things, you know, that, that you and I uh, talked about when we were uh, preparing for the show tonight uh, when we talked. And, you know, you had another brilliant idea, uh, if I don't say so myself. Um, you know, what well, we talked about the fact that, you know, that the sectors are known, you know, they're a known quantity. You know, as you move into mm-hmm. a sector, you're like, okay, I can go here and I can receive uh, uh, basically 10 casualties uh, by moving into this zone, or I can move into this zone where I'm only going to receive four, but then I also, uh, that's a horrible example, uh, I think it's like, you know, five, but then you also roll a die for machine gun fire. And so it, it in all probability, should turn out a little better than the 10, but it could be worse. So, you know, you have a decision to make there, you know, and that's that's one of the few decisions in the game, other than that initial assessment of the map, um, and you know the, the the decisions that you make when you decide what which dice to keep, uh, which dice to lock after that first roll. For those not familiar with the game, it is a Yahtzee style game where you're going to get to roll three times, but with your first roll, uh, unless uh, that there is a a sector or a piece of equipment or an or, or an item that tells you otherwise, you know you you have to lock two of those first dice which means you have to select them and you're going to stick with them and you're going to try to build your sort of hand of results from there um so you know you do have a decision to make there you do have a decision to make when you first assess the map uh however even by the designer's own notes in the back of the game you know it says you know the the first thing you got to be concerned about is getting those soldier results and so because the game, the currency uh, in the game, which again, I want to talk about the theme a little bit later, that the currency in the game is soldiers. And you're, you're losing soldiers every turn. And you have to try to make sure that enough soldiers survive that you can enter the bunker and defeat it uh, in order to win the game. And so uh, what I find is that, okay, so if, if it's a given sort of stated fact that you know, you really need to have soldiers as your priority. That kind of takes a little bit of the decision out of the game. If there's an optimal route through the map, that takes a little bit more decision out of the game. And if you can all cluster together, that takes even more decision out of the game. Whereas if you implement a simple rule change like two dice per sector or the brilliant idea you came up with, which was, you know... Take these, take these zones on the map and either have some of them or all of them be sort of a random pull from a bag so that when you advance into a new zone, you're never entirely sure of what you're going to find there. And you might walk into a zone that's, that's not too bad that you decide you want to hunker down in for a while. Well, that's, that's making a decision on the fly based on the situation that you find. Or you may walk into a zone that's just a death trap and you're like, oh my God, we got to get out of here. Let's move laterally or, you know, let's, let's advance because you can't retreat with very few uh, exceptions. Um, there's the, the one map where if you try to climb the wall and you can't, you can retreat once, I think. But normally you can't retreat at all. And, you know, I really like that idea, Joel. I, I like your idea of adding that element of uncertainty because, you know, the, the people who actually did storm these beaches did not know everything about what they were walking into. And I, I think that, you know, maybe having all of the map be a chit draw um, might be a little too much chaos. But I right. think it would be interesting to do that occasionally. And, you know, that that idea, that design decision to me 
is confirmed by the fact that the the designer of the game includes it in the Sword Beach scenario. Now, I don't know if you played the Sword Beach map, but that's the one where there are, there are two or three, there's either two or three sectors where you actually do have a random chip pull that's going to determine what you find in that zone. And right. that adds a lot of uncertainty and a lot of tension to the game and then forces you to adapt maybe what you had planned to do based on what happens there. And so, you know, I found that that worked really well. So my question is, why is it only on Sword Beach? Right. And there's the other one where uh, it might be Sword Beach. I'm trying to think. It's we roll a die, not for machine gun fire, but yes. for sort of a bonus effect. Like, But it could even be positive, like you find shelter or something. Yes, absolutely. But, yeah, that, that's the one. You roll a die, and some of them are yeah. positive, but some of them yeah. are horrible. Um, yeah. and, and so, you know, you, know, you never know exactly what you're going to get. Right. And I, and I really like that aspect of it. And, and I agree. I think, you know, doing the whole map um, uh, random wouldn't really work because, you know, the first sector needs to be low on defense. So you, you don't just get killed on the first turn. Right. But then it, then it kind of becomes a a, um, a fiddly kind of aspect. You know, you have like an A stack of chits and a B stack as you move up the middle. And, the, you know, right. then you got a whole bunch of stuff you're going to manage. You know, so maybe if you did, if you tiled out the maps instead of having like a static board, right? Yeah, you could just you could pull out like some A's and B's and C's or something, and and I don't know. It's just uh, to me the problem, the main problem is the um, just the balance of it. You know, with four players, you can just trade away your woes. You know, with one player, you've got no chance, and you know, and just it 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 is so static. I wonder if there's just some other element there that they could add. Uh, you know, to the system, but it's also meant to be very quick yes. and light as well. So it's, it, it, I really see this one kind of walking sort of a fine edge. Yes. Where, and, and, and we spoke about this the other day was, you know, when I sit down and play it, it's got, it's got an odd quality for me. It's sort of like, okay, I get in there, I get into the theme of it and I actually somewhat enjoy the game probably about three quarters of the way through and then it just kind of like is unsatisfying. It's it, it it it's the design is nice. It's very simple. It's very streamlined, and it ha- it works. It's very clean. But it's just like at the end of the day, I'm not satisfied with with having spent the time with the game. And I you know it's and and it's all of these issues that that you've brought up, and and that I've brought up. And I it's really hard to pin down. But I really get into the theme of it, and I really am excited when the game starts to yes. say. Okay, okay, but you know, like I said, as I played it more and more and more, it's like ah, the enjoyment is just there, and I'm not really looking forward to playing it uh, at this point ever again. So it really walks that that razor's edge for me. Yeah, it does, and and I wonder if it is that balancing act that you're talking about between, um, you know, you mentioned that that, that the board is static, right? Uh, with, with with few exceptions, I mean, you have the the Merville battery board where. You, you have to have a certain piece of equipment to even enter certain zones and some some zones you have to go to to get certain pieces of equipment and uh, some zones require specialists uh, in order for you to even advance there or to sacrifice specialists. But, you know, the, the, the bottom line is the board is pretty static because it's perfect information other than the machine gun die rolls or on the Sword Beach, I think it was, map where you have that random chit pull, right? Mm-hmm. So... 
I wonder if the designer did it that way because the dice, you know, like, did he do a static board because the dice is supposed to be the chaos and the randomness? So he felt that the board needed to be a known quantity because rolling the dice is always an unknown or, you know, was it again an issue of playtesting and development, you know, that that. That, that that razor's edge wasn't really walked quite as well as it could have been because so many of the decisions seem to be <laughs> so many of the decisions seem to be automatic right. um, and, and and you know to me that really detracts from the game um, well I mean that's the thing is you kind of like the whole thing with the locking of the dice at the beginning. Is it's it works in one hand where it kind of adds a little bit of tension. It's like, oh gosh, I got some skulls of two different colors, and then I didn't really get a whole lot of anything else really clear. Do I keep those skulls and go for the dead man's chest or whatever it's called? Dead man's gift, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And then, or do I, you know, or I got some soldiers or something. So it, it kind of locks you in, which makes your next couple of rolls sort of exciting. But then it also makes it very obvious what you should do is you just go, okay, this is going to be the biggest bang for my buck out of these two dice I have to lock. Right. And then I'm, and then I'm going to pursue that path. And then it's just not – just like not – it's almost weird because there's not enough going on. There's a lot going on on the map. There's damage that's going to come, some different effects. Um, but all it's going to really do is, is lose – you know, knock out soldiers, knock out specialists. Yeah. And so all you're really deciding on is what what dial do I want to spin up and then I'm, and then I'm going to wait and move forward. There's not really a lot of and maybe the theme is gets evaporated, you know, halfway through the game. Maybe the components and the rolling of the dice and the excitement of that is enough to kind of get you going initially. But I think the theme and the and the excitement sort of drops away because it is it is kind of uh uh Wrote. It's very repetitive, where you know, it's all you're doing is all you're doing is rolling dice and then counting these numbers. There's no extra sort of chrome on top of it, above and beyond that. So maybe it's kind of, or at least for us, you know, it sounds yeah. like kind of missing that extra aspect that you would kind of want in a war game, right? Or a war-ish game. Yeah. Well, there's know. and there's definitely. I mean, I, I don't know. There's definitely some chrome to me. I mean, I, I like the fact that. You have different items that are available on different maps. I mean, you gotta love the Bangalore torpedo, uh, the flamethrower, yeah. you know, the grenade. I mean, there, there's there's right. some you know the binoculars. There's some really cool items, uh, and, and I kind of view that as chrome. I I like the the variety of specialists that can pop up. I think that that's a nice kind of addition that can add some variety. But mm-hmm. you know, again, most of the time to me it seems like you know some of the decisions are kind of obvious you know uh, and then yeah. to add to that you have the maps that are requiring you to uh, they're making decisions for you you know if I want to go here I have to have a minesweeper if mm-hmm. I want to go here I, I must have a chaplain before I advance here or I must have this person to sacrifice or I must have the decoy in order to sacrifice, in order to move into this zone. So again, it's like it's decisions that are being taken out of my hands and mm-hmm. being dictated to me by the board. This, the, you know, the AI of the game. Because the board is the AI, the, the AI of the game. But the difference here is that the AI is completely visible. It is completely known, other than machine gun fire, um, or or that you know those those few random zones. 
so so to me that takes away from the the decision space in the game you know because when when i when i do these shows i try to look back at that framework that that uh, i've adopted for for critical review and you know I, I the decision space of a game is very important you know what are the kinds of decisions that the game allows you to make and how interesting are those decisions and i think i agree with you that unfortunately uh, while I find some decisions that I make during the course of the game to be very interesting, uh, they almost seem to be fewer and far between than I want them to be. Um, and so there's a little bit of a disappointment there. Uh, you know, I think that the dynamics of the game, which is another area I, I, I like to try to look at, uh, I, I like the dynamics of the cooperative aspect of it with two players. But I really don't like it when you get into the three and four player because of everything that we've already discussed. And also to me, you know, another sort of dynamic of the game is is that board, you know, the interaction that the players have with the board. So when I take all of these things together, I'm afraid I have to say that I'm a little disappointed. And I kind of hate that because there's a large part of me that really still kind of in some ways likes the game. I mean, geez, if my wife is going to bed early because she's got to be up at 5 a.m. to to work a shift, um, I'm happy to pull the game out solitaire. Um, And and I usually play with the variant where you just pick a random badge to start the game with. Um, There's a a little expansion called the badges. And for those who aren't familiar with it, basically what most of the badges do is make it easier for you to get what are called RWB or red, white, and blue bonuses. These are... These are special bonuses that you can get with the combinations of dice that you roll and select and save that will give you an additional bonus on top. So if I was going to get six soldiers, now I get 12. Um, you know, if I was going to get, uh, you know, this many uh, courage, I can also choose to take, you know, um, uh, geez, what, what is the one with courage? If you, do you remember that one, Joel? If you get the RWB with courage. Uh, you can get uh, soldiers, yeah, you can, or yeah, you can you can uh, you can move forward without spending yes, courage. That's it. Yep. Or or you can get three soldiers. Yes, or give three <laughs> soldiers to another unit, or you know, right. uh, which I think in the solitaire you know game basically means you get the three soldiers. Um, so right. you know, I, I can still sit down and play this game and have some fun, but I I, I kind of feel like the game is almost playing me uh, as much as I'm playing the game. There's there's just not as much. Uh, there's not as much tension and, and decisions for me to make. Uh, and, and when you start playing solitaire, you really are a slave to the dice that, that, that you get. I mean, the, the, the die results, the results that you get is what you get. And right. sometimes that's going to mean you're just crushingly defeated. And other times it means, you know, you might have some luck and, and, you know, get a little bit of excitement from that, you know, almost like going to a casino, you know, it's like, woohoo, you know, I got, you know, the, the soldiers and the, 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 Soldier bonus, the reinforcement bonus, you know, awesome, I really needed that. Or, uh, oh boy, I got the courage that I needed so I can finally advance so I'm not pinned down here. I I was about to die and be eliminated, you know. So there is some excitement, there's some tension, um, but that tension rapidly fades away when you start adding more players. Uh, but I don't want to. I don't want to keep beating a dead horse. And that, that that's just my opinion, and 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 I think I'm right on that. I, I think that's a problem. Um, so again, I I, I want to like this game, um, but there are, there are some problems with it that make me feel that you know until maybe something has changed or some additions or some some different ideas are used to sort of 
expand the choices that you have and and uh, expand the the excitement of of the unknown that should be added to the game. I I, I find that I don't know if it's one that is going to stick around for a long time and. I'm really kind of sad about that because I really do love the theme. So, Joel, why don't you and I take a moment and talk about the theme? Tell me uh, what about the theme itself and then the theme as presented in this game appeals to you uh, originally or maybe even still, despite your reservations. Right. Well, I mean, you know, D-Day, like I said at the beginning, is such a monumental day in history. Uh, And it's very, you know sort of the underdog in a sense against all odds, you know, jumping off the boats onto the beach, you know, we, we lost so many soldiers on that day and just that, that striving to get up the mountain and get on top of the hill and get into the bunker. And, and really that whole idea of scrambling to find cover, to find weapons, you know, to find courage and all that stuff. I mean, it's just really, really appealing and, you know, it's one of the the biggest historical days of the last century. And as far as the way that the theme is presented, I think for the most part, it makes sense in how the mechanics work and how everything's laid out with the components. It's just that, like, at the end of the day, the gamer aspect of me invades and and really just sees a lot of these obvious problems we've talked about and then... Then the theme sort of just evaporates, like I said. But uh, I think for the most part, it kind of does its job as far as, like, let's turn D-Day into uh, – this sounds sort of circumspect and maybe a little bit unfair, but it's like let's turn D-Day into Yahtzee. Um, I mean, I you know, to be honest with you, I'd much rather play this than Yahtzee. Let's make that clear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, – um, but it does a it does a good job. I wouldn't. The thing is, it doesn't do a great job. It does a good job of turning in, into into sort of a, like a gateway historical war game kind of idea that you know you can play with your wife or your spouse or somebody that's not a gamer. Whereas if you you know if you said World War II war game, D Day dice types of games aren't the first thing that's going to pop into your head. It's going to be you know. Uh, no retreat or, you know, hex encounter games and things mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. that take hours and hours and hours and are fabulous games, but not something you can break out with your kids or, or whoever. And so I think in that aspect, it probably will work good. And I think that uh, there's going to be, though, a frustration of people that want to sit down and play it with four. And, you know, I don't, it's, it, it's not simple enough to be a gateway game where somebody can just go into a game st- store and pick it up. I think there's too much going on in that sense if somebody's not a gamer. So, it, like I said, again, it's walking that razor's edge of, like, where does it fall? You know, is it, is it supposed to be a filler game? Or, you know, it's, it, it, like, you know, I think you're getting what I'm trying to say. It kind of mm-hmm. walks the razor's edge, and I think it just kind of doesn't know where it's supposed to live, I guess. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. You know, this idea of it—it it, it just it, it does some things extremely well, but other things, you know, not so much. And it's like, is it is it a light filler? Is it more than a light filler? I mean, I got to tell you, I really respect the the effort that the designer put into just the research in the game, like the the different maps and and the way that they're put together. Uh, you know, with with what seems to me to be a lot of care to historical accuracy. Uh, when I read through that rule book, I mean, he has, you know, each map is dedicated to a different actual unit uh, mm-hmm. or, or group that fought 
you know, and, and I really appreciate that. I mean, the, 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 the historical geek in me really appreciates that attention to detail and, and that much of a desire, I think, on his part to tell this story and to tell the story in a way that, you know, a, a more casual gamer could actually experience. And, and I think that, that that was a really lofty goal. That, that was an excellent goal. And yeah. I think in some ways the game succeeds brilliantly. Uh, as you said, yes, I would rather play this than Yahtzee any day. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, it, it does so many things well um, thematically. Uh, there's a small part of me that has a, a, a I'm not going to say a problem. That's too strong of a word. And I actually saw a thread on Board Game Geek where somebody was talking about this, where someone kind of just asked the question, is anybody else bothered or did it pop into your head while you were playing this game that people are dying? And, you know, it, it, it really, you know, now that happens in every war game. I mean, I have played war games, you know, and, and yes, you know, you're, you're actually, those little cardboard counters are representing people dying. I think the difference here is that in D-Day Dice, there, there were a few times where I kind of caught myself, like, going like, yay, only six guys died this turn, you know, like, I was, I was excited about it, you know, and, and I remember, like, stopping and thinking, yeah, but these, these are... You know, historically thinking, you know, again, that that historical geek hat on these are these were real people. You know, these were people who, you know, who died, you know, that 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 that, yeah. that lost their life there on that beach. And, you know, because it's a dice game where you're rolling the dice and it has that 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 visceral reaction of, you know, taking a chance and pushing your luck and and you want to cheer you know when you get what you want that's just a natural thing um and yet you know when you look at the actual results is it's like yeah you know you lost that many people you know those guys are dead they're gone and so you know that that it doesn't bother me it doesn't bother me but it was something that popped into my head about the theme it's like you know is it I, I think that the designer did such a good job of being respectful in the rule book and in his ideas about the development of, of how he wanted to present the game and tell the story of the game. But when I play it, I almost felt like I was being a little too casual with people's lives. Does, does that make sense at all? Or, or did you have any of those kinds of feelings or reactions or am I just being a nut? No, I think, uh, well, I mean, that, that sort of thing falls into every war game, as you said. Um, God, that's a tough, tough topic. It's probably a topic all by itself. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, I didn't, like, I didn't have any, well, see, in the four-player game, I didn't have any empathy because I could just trade my soldiers to somebody else. Right. But in the single-player and the two-player, yeah, because it was like, okay, we're getting murdered here. We're getting slaughtered. And so I don't know that I had any sort of you know, emotional or spiritual empathy with it. Um, but I don't know that I, it's, it's a rare, rare game, or especially a war game, rare war game, I should say, that I have empathy with the subject matter. And it usually needs to be something that I relate to anyway outside of the game. Right. Now, personally for me, World War II is a little bit removed. Um, but, uh, you know, like just a couple, this is an example of that, you know, Phantom Leader is a Vietnam game and my grandfather served in that and and so i have sort of emotional investment in that and then twilight struggle since i kind of lived through the 70s 80s and 90s or early 90s in 1989 those kind of games uh 
you know, I have a little bit more of an emotional investment. But World War II for me is, you know, honestly, it's a little bit removed for me in my age and everything. And, you know, I think of Saving Private Ryan when I play the game, and that's a pretty emotionally impactful movie. Sure was. But it, 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 it's, a, it's a tricky thing with a, with a game. It, it's like it almost needs... Uh, and it's kind of a problem with not a problem. Uh, 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 the nature of board games is that they need some other aspect to come into the game for you to get it. Because by themselves, the board games are just basically abstracts. All of them, no right. matter what game it is. If it's a war game that takes forty million hours to play, or whatever, or it's Dungeons and Dragons or something, <laughs> you really need that external aspect informing your game. I would say let's, I'm just going to 90% of the time. So that's, it's very personal kind of thing. So anyway, but that's, that's kind of where I come down on that whole issue. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of uh, truth to what you said. I mean, I, I feel the same way about twilight struggle in 1989. I mean, I have vivid memories of, of a lot of the events, not all of them, of course, especially in twilight struggle, which reaches way back. But you know, I, a lot of those sort of uh, events and those event cards, I mean, are things that I, I actually remember from from uh, growing up. So I have a, a connection to them. And, and, I, and I want people to understand, it's not that I'm saying that this is a problem with the game. As a matter of fact, it may actually be a good thing, you know, that, that, that I had that moment where I took a step back and said, whoa, you know, there, there's that, you know, there, there is actual cost here. You know, it, right. it's it's not just numbers on this dial. Every time I rotate this dial, that represents the fact that people have been lost. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm not even saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that, you know, when I, when I wanted to talk about the theme and how strongly I thought the theme came through for the most part in this game, I, I wanted to mention it because it was an actual reaction that I had to the game. Uh, and again, nothing that I object to, nothing that I think is, is terrible, uh, but something that I felt was worth noting. And uh, I was kind of relieved when I saw the thread on Board Game Geek that you know other people were kind of posing the same question. So... You know, maybe that's mission accomplished for the theme, you know, to get people to think about the cost of that day. Uh, because, you know, I, I think you're right. Like, I, I distinctly remember going to the movie theater and watching Save It Private Ryan. And I remember the first 15 minutes of that movie, when that was over, I felt like I'd been in a train wreck. Um, yeah. it, it, it was one of the most emotionally intense experiences in cinema that I've ever had. Um, it was, it was numbing. Um, it was, it was so, it felt so real. Um, and it drove home to me a, a little piece of what it might've been like, um, you know, for the, for the soldiers who had been there. So I had that reaction to that movie and, and, and at a couple of times I kind of had that reaction in the game. So maybe that's actually a good thing. Um, so well, you know, I wanted to just show another little aspect of that, that yeah. an idea that I have kicking around in my head is. I have found that it seems to me that the other thing that you need to keep in mind or people should keep in mind with board games is a lot of it is has to do with your group. So it, when I played this and I sat down with mostly Euro gamers, it was very mathematical and, okay, I'll trade you this, I'll trade you that. And so the game was more about winning the game and trying to optimize our play. Whereas if I played it with a different group or when I played it solitaire, then, you know, you can kind of just sit there and meditate on a little bit yourself. And I think it, a solitaire game seemed to me to have automatically more theme. 
<laughs> just because it's it's what you bring to the game, what you bring to the table, and there's no other sort of quote unquote distractions of the other players and their sort of goals and agenda with the game. Um, so I will say that yeah, when I play it solitaire, like I said, you know, then I get a little bit more invested in the theme, and that's not really a fault of you know or anything of this game. I think it's with every game, but yeah. That's a, that's an interesting point because you you don't have interference from other people in their interpretation of a theme or lack of interpretation of a theme in in in, sure. in the case that you're giving you know the, where you have people who are just kind of trying to run the numbers. Um, right. Yeah. That, that's but if, a, if you sat down and played this game with a uh, um, a World War II vet, you know, um, <laughs> I think you'd have a very much different experience with the game. Yeah, so absolutely. There's also that aspect of it as well. Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, you know, again, I think you're right in that it, it it depends on what people are bringing to the table when they come to play the game or or have that experience. I mean, that's why some people you know really connect with certain themes in games, and and others they could care less about. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my my wife, for example, is just not that into sci-fi theme. I mean, it could be a great game, but if it's a space game, she kind of looks at me like, "Is this another stupid space game?" Um, I, you know, I, 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 it's just not a theme that resonates with her. But if it's a if it's a game where you're building something like, um, you know, uh, Lahav, or or you're building something like Oren Labora, she she really enjoys that. There's there's something that that she connects with in that particular type of theme. So I think you're right about that. And so, you know, maybe that's just my own filter and lens, you know, thinking about the, the theme with, with my sort of uh, general interest in, in passion for uh, historical things that kind mm-hmm. of sent me off down that road. Um, you know, so that, that's entirely true. And like I said, it, it's, it's, it wasn't an indictment of the game, but it was something that I wanted to bring up. So, you know, I think overall, I, I you know, I want to like this game, I, I respect a lot of the things that went into the game, but ultimately, unfortunately, I feel that the game was almost either not developed properly or I feel that it was misrepresented. Like, it, it should be a one-to-two-player game or it, it should have had some adjustments for multiplayer three and four. And I think if, if those adjustments aren't made, I don't know that the game works enough for me long term to hang out in my collection. And right. the, the the last thing I want to add about that is is this idea of you know is it going to hang out long term in my collection? And I know there's going to be people out there uh, who are listening who are saying, well, if you only played it 20 times, how can you do a long view on a game you've only played 20 times? That's not fair. You can't do a long view on a game you've only played 20, and Joel's only played five or 10 or whatever. And and you know I, I just kind of want to talk about that for a second because. I, I, I want people to understand that I don't agree with that at all. Um, I think the amount of time that you need to play a game is completely dependent upon the game. I, I don't need to play for sale a hundred times in order for me to understand what that game is all about. I, I, it is a, and it's a game that's still in my collection and will probably always be in, in my collection. I really like that game. It's a game I can pull out with anybody. It's got a unique two-phase part to it. Uh, it's simple. It's fun. It's got fun artwork. It's, it's, it's silly. And yet there's some real decisions to be made there. It's a light game to be sure. But, man, it's a good one. But, you know, I don't need to play it a hundred times. And there's no magic number, in my opinion, 
that you need to have played before you can draw some solid conclusions about a game. And I know that there's going to be people out there that disagree with that statement, and that's fine. And, you know, I can't be all things to all people. But I, 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 I challenge the notion, and I'd be curious to see what people would say, that, you know, there, there is a magic number. That, you know, well, unless you played the game, you know, X amount of times, you're not an authority. Well, first of all, I don't know that anybody claims to be an absolute authority on anything except maybe the designer themselves. And I think a lot of times designers are surprised by what happens to their creations once they're out there. Uh, you know, yeah, you can ask Martin Wallace about that and a few acres of snow, okay? Um, right. And, and so I don't know that anyone can speak with absolute authority. I think some opinions are more informed than others. And I, you know, wouldn't record this episode after my roughly 20 plays, if I didn't feel that I understood the game well enough in order to talk about it. Um, what do you feel about that? I mean, do you feel that there is a, a, a number? Because, you know, Joel, when you and I first talked about doing this podcast, when I approached you about it and, and you talked to me about it very nicely, thank you, by the way, you know, my original idea for the show was called 10 and Up. Uh, and I wanted to call it 10 and up because I wanted to make a commitment to play a game at least 10 times before I talked about it. And right. we decided to change, you know, the, the name of the show. And, and I came to you with the idea, well, what about the long view? And, and, and you kind of liked that and I liked it. Um, and I wanted to get away from that hard number because, I mean, I could play Paths of Glory 10 times, which I haven't, by the way. And there's no way that I would feel that I totally understand that game. But, you know, if I play, uh, you know, a, a game like Scripts and Scribes ten times, I think I got a good handle on it. I, I think that there's yeah. some subtlety and nuance, but, you know, there's no hard number. What do you think about that? Well, I would say um, I think there's actually multiple numbers. And just because, you know, we're on the subject, I've played it seven times, just in case people wonder. I've DNA dice seven times. Um, so then you can in, invalidate or invalidate anything I said if, uh, based on that if you want. But I actually think there's multiple numbers because I've found that, especially a game like uh, take – I don't want to use this example, but I'm going to use it because it's very common <laughs> – is, is, is Race for the Galaxy. So if you've played that five times – then you have a certain level of experience with the game. And if you've played it 20 times, you're going to have a level of experience with the game. If you've played it a thousand times, which some people claim to have done, I've read threads about it, then you're going to have an entirely different level of experience. The question is, where is the cutoff to make, like you said, a sort of uh, meaningful sort of conclusion about the game and come to some sort of idea what you think the game is about? And I don't think necessarily that there is a number that is going to say, here's the cutoff. Because the point somewhat is about where you are with the game and when was the last time you've played it, who you've played it with, a lot of factors in the game. What other games have you played since you started playing the game? You know, because like my perspective on Race for the Galaxy will change once I play Eminent Domain or Glory to Rome or if I play, you know, any other number of games. And so it's very, very hard to say this, I've decided it, and here's the definitive final word on this game, and that's it. Because that's not going to happen. And I think um, 
and, and, and I kind of get into that myself when I'm reviewing a game or talking about it even on here, is I kind of decide, okay, this is all I've got to, to know from this game. This is all I've got to learn from this game. But I think that that is not accurate because, like I said, you're going to play other games. You're going to go, oh, they did this kind of thing similar. Let me go back to Race for the Galaxy or whatever it is and look at it through another lens because you see some other sort of design decisions that were made in the same sort of space. And then maybe that makes you appreciate a game more than, you know, you did originally and or maybe it makes you not appreciate it as much because, OK, now there's this other entity out here that I can play instead. So it's very, very tricky. And even like you mentioned for sale and I've played that, I can't even tell you how many times, not 100, but probably around 50, 30 to 50. You know, I don't really count that kind of thing that too right. much. Uh, and, you know, I played it and played it, played it. And then it was like, oh, OK, and I kind of got it. But then you kind of you kind of take a break from the thing and come back to it and you play it with new people in some games for sales, not really one of these, but in a very, very subtle way, you can kind of try something a little bit different than you did the last time and see how it works where it really becomes less about winning the game and seeing, okay, if I try this sort of subtly different approach, I may not win, but I'm going to see kind of how well I do. And, and especially as you play more and more games, Anyway, you're going to try to see just how these things kind of work together, I think. I mean, that's kind of how I am. I kind of like, I'm more about like figuring out how these things are put together. And I really try to win, obviously, but it's it's this never-ending cycle. That's what I'm getting back to. It's, it's you know, it, it's, I think that there's a minimum amount of plays that you, you should play. You should understand the rules, obviously. You should understand how it works, understand the basics of the game, sort of generally which sort of categories it fits into, obviously. But as far as the subtleties and the nuance, I mean, those can, in some games, they can just seem to go on and on and on forever, like chess or go, obviously, there's entire books. So it's very, very tricky, and I, and I think everybody's perspective, it, it should be valued to a certain extent, as long as they give you, you know, a kind of heartfelt impression of the game. Uh, but it's, it's, I'm kind of all over the map here, but it's, it's much more nuanced than a specific number for a specific type of game. Um, you know, and I would say you at least want to play it a handful of times, four or five times before you make up your mind. Now, if you hate a game, you know, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but, you know, if you hate a game after one play, well, don't play it. You know, forget it. Why why beat yourself over the head? And that's kind of how where this one got to me. I was I, I played it, I think, four or five times, you know, and then we kind of started talking about doing the show. And I was like, uh, I don't know if I want to play it anymore. So I played it a couple more times. And the last couple were very sort of, you know, and I know I necessarily wasn't going in with the right attitude at that point. I mean, I feel confident in myself that I, I'm giving it a fair shake and I'm, you know, and my opinions are, are, are truthful. So, but yeah, it's, it's very, very sort of nuanced and, and et cetera. So if that was a political statement, <laughs> then, then that's what it was. But, you know, that's that, that's what I think. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, you have a lot of experience with reviewing games and uh, with talking mm -hmm. about games and thinking about games and playing very many uh, different types of games. And uh, I, I imagine you've probably uh, played a lot of games that you might never have actually picked out for yourself. Um, but you know, there's someone yes. asked you to review and you're like, all right, you know, and, and I imagine you've been pleasantly surprised and I imagine you've also uh, been like, yep, that's exactly what I thought it was going to be. 
mm-hmm. you know, because there's also the sentiment that's been out there, um, you know, that, you know, well, if you don't like the game, why do a show on it? And, you know, mm-hmm. my thing is, you know, if even if there's something about a game that I don't like or, or something that, that I feel doesn't work well, it doesn't mean there's nothing to learn from the game. It doesn't mean there's nothing to learn from the design. Maybe that's the teacher in me, you know, that, the, that you know, we learn as much, if not more, uh, from our mistakes than we do from our success. And so, you know, I, I absolutely feel that, you know, even though there are things about this game that, that, that kind of bother me that I have a problem with, um, you know, it's still important to talk about because, you know, we're talking about design ideas here. We're talking about the ideas of, you know, leveling a game's AI based on the number of players and how vital that is. We're, we're talking about development and playtesting issues. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about, um, you know, things that could be tweaked or changed or suggestions that, you know, maybe would be helpful um, to other designers. I mean, that, that, that's at least my hope. So, you know, n- not that, you know, our opinions are necessarily, you know, we're not the wise men sitting on the mountain dispensing advice to, you know, the designers because, again, they have that creative spark and I respect them for that because I don't know that I could do that out of whole cloth. Um, so I, 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 hats off to them. Um, but, but I do think that through looking at something through a critical lens, there are things to be learned and there are lessons to be learned. And uh, I, I, so I, I think that, yeah, you absolutely can have a long view on a game where I might not think it's going to stand up to the test of time. Because, you know, this game on so many levels, and, and this is maybe a good place for me to wrap up my feelings on it, this game hits on so many levels and then misses on quite a few levels. But I think in, in some ways it hits, for me personally, on more than it misses. So I want to hang around and see what happens with this game. I want to see if maybe some of these things are addressed. Even though I've started off the show saying I hate it when a game has to be fixed, there are so many things about this that I like and appreciate that I hope that either in this design or in future designs, I mean, I know for a fact, I haven't played Airborne in my pocket, but I know that one's coming out soon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I hope that maybe, you know, some, some of these uh, ideas uh, about development, playtesting, um, you know, are, are things that not only will happen for this game or that game or Airborne in my pocket, but for all games, because that's really kind of the theme for me of this episode is, you know, these problems were readily apparent to me after very few plays. And I know that that could have been spotted beforehand. Um, I know I'm not the only one that would have spotted that. So, um, you know, I, 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 I'm going to be curious to see where this goes. Um, and I also want to thank you for sharing your thoughts on uh, this game and on the idea behind the theme and connection with theme and, and all the things you brought to the conversation tonight, Joel. So thank you very much for joining me on, on uh, this episode of the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Jeff. So to everyone out there listening, um, I want to say thank you, of course, uh, once again to 2d6.org for generously hosting the Longview podcast. I encourage people to go there not only to listen to the podcast, but also to look at all of the other contributions uh, made by Joel and uh, Marco and and so many others um, uh, who 
provide such wonderful content on that website. As we're recording this right now, for example, 2D6 does a great series of interviews with designers, um, with uh, um, people uh, – geez, why am I stumbling with this? With designers and with publishers. Thank you. That was the, that was the people who make the games. Um, that, with designers and publishers. And right now they're doing one with uh, Richard Lanius and uh, – uh, 20 questions with Richard Lanius. And, and this is a really neat series that 2D6 offers where uh, people who come to the website can actually post questions to the designer. And a lot of those questions are, are going to be picked. They're going to be posed to uh, the guest. And, you know, you, you really get some unique insights when you participate in those conversations. I encourage people to go there and check that out. And, of course, as always, I want to send my thank you out to gamesurplus.com for their generous support of the podcast. And and encourage everyone who is thinking about perhaps uh, maybe you think I'm totally just off base about D-Day Dice. Well, I'll, you may be able to get a copy from Thor over at GameSurplus.com right now. But regardless of what you're looking for, uh, GameSurplus is a great source for you to go to for all of your gaming needs. And you can find them at www.GameSurplus.com. So for myself and for Joel Eddy, I want to say thank you very much for listening to the podcast and good night.